If you have your Bibles, please turn them to 1 Samuel chapter 15. But before I even start there, I want to start off by telling you that I had a rough morning. I, 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 yeah, I had a really rough morning. It's been a rough morning this whole time, just trying to uh, get the family ready, get everybody ready, come to church. It's been hectic since I've gotten here. And I know if I've had a rough morning, more than likely, uh, most of you have had rough mornings too. And you know how Spider-Man has spidey sense, like he can, he can sense, he's aware of things around him that other people aren't. So when you've been preaching for a long time, you can get a sense of the atmosphere in the room and you can tell when people seem tired or when people are distracted or you can tell when people are just like, today's been a rough morning. Right. And then that atmosphere kind of fills up the room and you get a sense of that, that people are tired and you're about to come up here and preach. And uh, and, and now people have to stay awake for at least 30 to 40 minutes, sometimes even 45 minutes if if I, if I get going. Let me tell you this. Do whatever you have to do to wake yourself up. If you're the one, if you need to slap yourself, slap yourself. If you need to move in your seat, move in your seat. If you need to pinch yourself, pinch yourself whatever you need to do to stay awake because, um, you know, don't let tiredness take this away from you. You need this. This is why we come together. Uh, this is the beginning of our week, and, and we need to be fed by the word of God. Just like we're fed every single day, three square meals, and sometimes about two snacks, uh, we, need to be, we need to be fed the word of God daily, but especially on Sunday as God's people. It's so important to us. So let's uh, open our book to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and I'm going to start off by reading verses 1 through 9. We're gonna, uh, this is going to be a two-part sermon. Part one is today uh, a consuming fire. We're going to be talking about God's holiness. And uh, so we're going to cover verses 1 through 9, and then next week we'll cover the whole chapter and discussing, again, God's holiness. But uh, let, me, let me start off by reading that. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah, and Saul came to the city, city, excuse me, to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly, utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction." That is the word of God. Amen. So our focus on this chapter will be the holiness of God. And mainly what I want to speak to you about is his reliability 
are the reliability of his holiness. I use that word purposely because when something is reliable, um, well, first of all, I use that, that word purposely because what we see about God here is that his holiness remains steadfast in both dealing with the Amalekites and also with King Saul. Uh, we'll, we'll discover, we can see King Saul mistake here in verse 9. We're really not going to dive into that today, but I mean, it is evident. King Saul does not do as the Lord tells him to do. And then also, you know, and then initially and more importantly, we see uh, his holiness come upon wicked people. Well, I use the word reliability because when someone or something is said to be reliable, it means it is trustworthy and consistent. That is the basic definition of being reliable, being trustworthy and or consistent. Now, when describing God, it's not fair enough or good enough just to say that he is trustworthy or consistent. Uh, We have to go above and beyond that. In fact, we do not have the words to appropriately to describe his holiness because he is utterly trustworthy and he is is utterly utterly consistent. Um, That means to the utmost. You can't get any any more trustworthy. You cannot get any more consistent than God. Uh, He is that perfectly. And for us, again, we do not have a word that just describes his holiness where we can completely understand it. It's hard for us to, dis- to understand perfect because we've, we've never seen it. We've never seen it with our eyes. We haven't seen perfection. Even though we think, okay, well, that's, you eat a meal and you think, oh, that was perfection. No, that, that's not perfection. You drink a drink, you say, oh, that's perfection. Wait till you get to heaven. Yeah, wait till you eat the meal there in heaven. Wait till you drink from the vine in heaven. That's perfection. That's perfection. So we do not know what perfection is, but we think we do. But God is utterly trustworthy and he is perfectly consistent. So when we look at God, we must understand that he is those things. But that means that everything that is associated with God, including his word and his judgment, are, are his judgments are holy as he is holy. Okay? And that's very important for us to keep in mind as we look at verses 1 through 9 of this chapter. God is uh, perfectly trustworthy and consistent, so then therefore uh, his, his word and his judgments are holy as he is holy. Okay, so I, I repeated that because that's very important for this chapter, and that's also very important in how we interact with God ourselves. I pray that God gives us wisdom to understand a conviction that stirs our hearts and also courage to respond as we should. I want to start off by first giving you the, um, the, the full story, an exegesis, if you will, a biblical exegesis. So I want to, in order to do that, I want to answer this question. Why did God command Saul to destroy the Amalekites? I, I had planned to preach on all the verses in chapter 15, but I could not get past chat, uh, verse 9 without saying, okay, I have to, I have to cover this. Because it, it, God wants to wipe away a nation of people. And it's like, this is, this is too much not to cover specifically. So I want to answer that question for you this morning. Why did God command Saul to destroy the Amalekites? Well, first of all, we see in verse 1 that Samuel was sent by the Lord. Samuel is his vessel. Uh, to, uh, he is the vessel of the Lord to go and speak to Saul. And when Samuel gets to where Saul is, he reminds him of something. He says that the Lord who anointed him king over Israel has sent him. Uh, He's wanting to make sure that Saul understands this is not a message from me, Samuel, but this is a message from the Lord. 
And it is not me who is, it's me who is speaking, but I am speaking the words of the Lord. So the one who called you, Samuel, the one who anointed you, Samuel, or excuse me, Saul, the one who anointed you, Saul, um, he is the one who right now is about to give you a command. So you better listen up. What is the command? Look at verses one through three. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted that Amalek did to Israel or what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Amalek is the nation of the Amalekites, right? So that's, it sounds like it's one individual person, but then you see that he is speaking of they, when, that how, the way they treated them when they came out of Egypt. So that is the Amalekites that the Lord is telling Saul to go and destroy. The one thing is clear here is that the Lord intended to destroy the Amalekites. And he also intended to use Saul's army to do that. And we can see this being played out as, as you know, in Scripture, as, as we have come to this point. The Lord has purposely built up Saul's army for this very reason. I want to remind you, if you go back and, and you read a couple of chapters, you'll see that Saul's army started off with 3,000 men. You remember that? And then, you know, then, then they got into uh, the fight with the Philistines. It was reduced down to 600 because all the deserters left the army. And then finally they came back, but it was, it was 3,000 men. But now we see something different. And in fact, if you go back to chapter uh, 14, you see that chapter 14 and the way it ends is that Saul spends years fighting everyone around him. Every enemy around him he spends fighting. And as he is fighting these people, their enemies, the Bible says that anytime he saw a strong man, he went and gathered him and put him in his army. Right. I think that's really important to, to, to understand when we're speaking about God's providence. We know that God does as he wills and he does it through our lives. Sometimes we don't understand what's going on. Saul might have been like, man, why, why am I always fighting against people? Not realizing that in that fight, his army is being built up. Right. The Lord is adding to his army. Sometimes I wonder that here at church, I'm like, man, why are we going through so much trouble lately? But yet at the same time, God continues to bring people. So it's beautiful. And he's strengthening his army here at our church. So we never know what's really going on, but, and, and neither did Saul, but we can see that the Lord, through his providence, was building up that army. Well, notice the title that it, that it uses for the Lord. It says the Lord of hosts. And we know that that's translated to the Lord of heavenly armies. Of all heavenly armies. So when we say heavenly armies, it's not only here on earth, but in other heavens. Because in the Bible, the earth is described as a heaven. So the Lord is the Lord of all armies. Now, that's important, uh, an important distinction for us to look at. This was not Saul's army. This was the Lord's army. Just like this is not my church, our Pastor Laramie's church, this is the Lord's church. Right? We are the church. There's, there's no difference. It is the Lord's. So Samuel or Saul spends all this time fighting all the enemies around him. The Lord is building up his army 
And now he has a command for Saul. Go and destroy the Amalekites. And now Saul's ready. Look at verse 4. It says, Saul summoned the people, and he numbered them, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And he's come a long way from 3,000 men. 3,000 men with no weapons. Look what the Lord has done. Through much turmoil, through much fight, through much pain, through much struggle, the Lord has built an army to be able to wipe out a nation. Think about that in your own families. We all wish that, man, life would just go without struggle. But where would you be without the struggle? How much have you depended on the Lord because of the struggle? How strong has the Lord made you and your family because of what you have gone through? That's that's really important for us to stop and consider. What it took to build this army, the Lord's army, what it's taken to build your family, the Lord's family. But when we look at our text within the command of the Lord, we find the reason as to why God's judgment has come upon the Amalekites. Look at verse two. This is what the Lord said. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel and opposing them on the way when they came out of Egypt. Therein lies the issue. See, most, if not all of you are aware of this event in the Bible, because it's a well-known story. It's a well-known story. If you've been in church for any length of period or if you've grown up in the church, you, you learned this, this story in uh, children's church or Sunday school. What the Lord is speaking of here is when the Israelites came out of Egypt. And when they came out of Egypt, they were met by the Amalekites and the Amalekites went to war with them. They hated the Israelites. They hated their God. And this is the battle where uh, Moses has the staff of God. You can refer to it in um, Exodus chapter 17, if you want to write that down. We're not going to go back and read that. But Exodus chapter 17, actually it's in verses 8 through 16. But this is the story where the Amalekites come and they fight the Israelites and the Israelites go and battle with them. And Moses is holding his staff in the air. And as long as he is holding his staff in the air, the Israelites prevail. He gets tired, though, and he starts to lower his staff. His hands start to droop. And as they droop, then the Amalekites, they start to prevail. So then what happens is that Aaron and her, they go and they lift up his arms, right? They go and lift up his arms so that the staff of God can be held the whole time. And so the result of that is, is that the Israelites win that battle. This is what the Lord is speaking of here when he is talking, when he is speaking through Samuel, but to Saul, saying now it's time for their judgment, and, and I want you to notice something, though, because this is what he tells, going back to Exodus chapter 17, this is what the Lord tells Moses whenever that battle uh, was complete, the Israelites won, the Amalekites retreated, and the Lord tells uh, Moses this. He says, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Remember, Joshua would be the one who took over after Moses. So in essence, what's happening here is, This is a promise I'm making. I want you to write this down and I want you to pass it on to anyone or everyone who takes over the nation of Israel after you. 
Joshua was the one who succeeded uh, Moses. So that's why Moses was to, he was to recite this in the ears of Joshua. And this is what the Lord says. I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under the heaven. That's verse 14 of Exodus chapter 17. So I think that's really interesting because the Lord says, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Have you ever said that? Like someone has challenged you and you say, I will do it. Write it down. What does that mean? I mean it. I will do it. And so the Lord, in all the way back in Exodus chapter 17, has made a promise, and he is so sure of it that he told them, write it down, pass it on from generation to generation. One day I will destroy the Amalekites. Uh, I will basically blot out the memory of them from under the heaven. Now, although this would not be the time for their complete destruction, and we're going to see that because of Saul's disobedience, the hand of the Lord against the Amalekites are, is, is very, very heavy. Uh, we see Israel go into battle with them in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and finally David destroys their army. But this is where the judgment begins. Saul commands, or God commands Saul to destroy the Amalekites. Why? Because they were wicked people. They were wicked people who did not worship him or obey him. He commanded Saul to destroy the Amalekites because their hearts were darkened and they were enemies of God. That answers that question. It's, it's pretty, pretty simple. But when we answer that question, this is the hard part. It doesn't sit well with us or with some of us. If we do not have a good understanding of who God is, it doesn't sit well with us that God would command, would build up an army, build up Saul's army, who, by the way, is a very disobedient king, but he would build up Saul's army to destroy another army and include women, children, and animals and everything. And we're like, whoa, wait a second. I, I, I thought God was love. Yes, God is love. God is holy. He, he is all those things perfectly. So, Next, we have to answer this question. What gives God the right to do something like that? Well, usually the first argument against God in this case is that his actions aren't fair. We, we like to say that, right? Especially when we see something happening somewhere in another part of the world, and, and we know that God is sovereign, but yet it's happening. We have to, you know, we ask ourselves, well, how is this fair? Or if something's ever happened to you, and you think that, man, I don't deserve this. This isn't fair. Uh, I've been there. I know you've been there as well. See, the problem with that argument is God is assumed to be like us. Right? Because that's what we're saying. Wait a second. I don't like the way I'm being treated because it's not fair because I can't treat somebody else like that. Or I would not treat somebody else like that. So the assumption is made that God is a man like us. And the second assumption is that those who are being punished are blameless. That is the second assumption. First, it's not fair, so we're assuming God is like us. Second, those, the Amalekites that are being punished, well, what did they do wrong? Other than want to fight Israel a long time ago, do they really deserve this? Well, the one thing that the Bible is very clear of is that God is not like us. I want to start off there. 
God is not like us. In fact, I mean, we can find that truth in any book of the Bible, but the one that I really love is uh, the book of Romans. We're going through that in Sunday school class, but the classic chapter in chapter 9, where it talks about God's sovereign choice. Um, Romans chapter 9, and I want to read to you, starting in verse 18. It says about God that he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, this is Paul being, you know, making this argumentative statement uh, so that he can basically bring out his conclusion, but he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If God is the one who uh, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he is the one who hardens whomever he wills, how can God find fault? That's what Paul is asking. And this is his answer. He answers himself for our benefit. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Man, that's a great comeback. What are, will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? That's very important. You see that distinction? We're not like God. See, Paul says God is the molder. And we are the ones who are molded. We are not like him. He is above us. Why? Because he is the creator. We are the creation. And then he says this in verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another for dishonorable use? There goes another distinction there. Verse 21. Who is God? He is the potter. Who are we? We are the clay. Big, big difference. Uh, Verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much, much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? You see, within this example that I've given you, we see that he is creator, we are his creations. Uh, God Being the creator, God is the one who has the right to rule over his creation the way he sees fit. Now, I know we can relate to this because you still might have a problem with it, but you can relate to this because uh, you, you have this right as long as it fits under the umbrella of God's law. And what I mean by that is I see families here. I see parents sitting with their children, right? So in a sense, we, we, know, we know ultimately God is the one who created your child, but he used you as a vessel. A man and a woman came together. The woman carried the baby in her womb, had the baby. Now they are sitting right next to you. Okay. You are the one who created them, in a sense, through God's power and everything else. I, I, I want to make sure that you're aware that I'm saying that. But they came through you. So then... You have a right over their lives. And we can test that out because I can go to your kid and I can start yelling at them. And you're going to be very quick to say, well, pastor, you better wait a second. Right. You you can you can. Some people are saying, no, please do that. (laughs) The, The thing is, is that they came from you. They were created from you. 
So then you have a right over their lives. And now, now we have to be very careful here because the reason why I said it must fit under the umbrella of God's law, you can't do anything or you should not do anything to them that God forbids. Right? See, that's our limit. That's our limit. Why is it, why is it bad to murder a child? Because God says so. You, you, thou shalt not murder. That's our limit. Even though they came from us, they're our children. We have limits. So even nature shows us that this is right. But see, God has no limits. God is completely holy. He is the author and he is also the finisher of life. So when he takes a life, it's not murder. For us, it's murder because we didn't create that life. For us, it's murder because God has commanded us not to kill. But when he, when he does it, when he ends a life, he is exercising his sovereign power. Right? We got to go back to that. It is for him, right? Everything is for him. It is to his glory. He knows the beginning all the way to the end. So when God ends a life, when he commands Saul to go and destroy the Amalekites, we have to see him as the author and finisher of life. He is exercising that right. Because he is creator and we are his creations. But also, the Bible demonstrates God as pure and uncorruptible. That's very important. He is holy, in other words. He is holy. He is a holy presence that lives among wicked and corrupt people. Thank God he does. See, he is transcended in every way, yet he lives in vessels as fragile as jars of clay. Because that's what Romans 9 is telling us. We are as... We, we are the ones who are molded by the potter. We are like jars of clay. We're very, very fragile. We're very, very sinful. And yet the Lord is so near to us that he lives in our hearts. So when we look at God's holiness, we must look at ourselves and see that we are not like him. So then that takes away the first argument. We cannot look at God and say, well, that's not fair because He is not like us. It is fair for him. In fact, we must be very grateful that he does not give us what is fair. A.W. Pink says of the holiness of God, he only is independently, infinitely, and immutably holy. I love that. Because independently, that means he doesn't get his holiness from anywhere else. It comes from within. Our holiness is dependent on him. Because if he'd never given us faith, we would be lost. But he is independently holy. He is infinitely holy. That means there is no, there's no measure of holiness in him. That is who he is. It will never run dry. He is immutably holy, meaning he, his holiness does not change. The God of the Old Testament is the God that we worship from the New Testament. Now, concerning man, Scripture says this, there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Man, there's a vast difference between us and God. God is independently, infinitely, and immutably holy, and we, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
As sinners, our hearts and minds are completely corrupt. We are guilty of sinning against God, and we deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on us. We truly, truly do. We deserve every single every single morsel of that wrath or every single bit of that wrath to be poured out on us. Years ago, I was a teenager. My mother comes home and she says, I found a job for you. My parents had a, had a gift of finding jobs for me. In fact, I started working before you could actually work. I worked at a local grocery store there in Port O'Connor and, and um, you know, I, I, I made money for myself because my parents didn't have the money to give to me. There was no allowance or anything else. So if I wanted something, I had to, I had to get to work very early on in life. But they were also always trying to keep me busy, right? Because I, back then I was not a believer. So when I wasn't working, I was getting in trouble. And so they always tried to keep me busy and they would come home with jobs for me to do. And with this job, it was our neighbor. Um, actually, they lived across the street from us about three houses down. And they had a flower bed. And for some reason, they wanted it trenched out. They wanted it trenched out around the perimeter. And I can't tell you the dimensions of the trench. Um, I just know that they gave me a shovel and said, can you dig this trench all the way around this, this garden? And uh, I thought, yeah, I can do that. Because my mother came home and she's like, oh, I, need, I know these people. She used to clean their houses. And they're like, you know, she's thinking, man, they have a lot of money. This is a really nice house. They're wanting to build a trench. They were looking to hire somebody. And I told them, my son can do that. Yeah, my son, he's young. He's strong. You know, he, he'll come and do a good job for you. So I'm like, OK, great. I'm like, that's awesome, mom. So I, I go over there and I report for work. Uh, they hand me a shovel and they, they tell me how they want me to dig it, and I start getting to work. Now, let me remind you, this is the middle of summer, right? And this is, the time I went over there was about 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, right? The hottest part of the day. And this trench I had to dig, it was, it was you know, it was a long trench. So I get to work. The whole time I'm digging, I'm thinking about how much money I'm going to make. I'm thinking, this is... Tough work because I used to work at a grocery store. I spent my time uh, putting items on on an aisle on, on the counter, uh, you know, in the ice, getting ice and packing it, it filling up drinks. It, it was it wasn't really really hard, so to speak, but this was hard. I was breaking my back here, sweating, and ended up taking off my shirt. And you know, of course, being a young boy, you always look for a reason to take off your shirt. And I'm back there, I'm just working hard, working hard, and I'm finally finished. The guy comes and checks on me maybe once or twice, brings me a lemonade, I'm drinking it. They sit on their front porch or watching me work. I'm just thinking how much of a big, how big of a payday I'm going to get. Well, I get done, my hands are blistered, I am tired, I am dirty, I'm hot, and he comes to pay me. Hands me some money, tells me that I did a really great job, thank you very much. I didn't want to count it in front of him. That's kind of rude, right? I just know, you know, I felt some loose bills, and I was thinking at least, at least 100. I was thinking that at least. Maybe it was 250s. I don't know what it was. He gave me a little wad. I put it in my pocket. I start going home. As soon as I'm, you know, out of eyesight, I dig in my pocket. I pull it out. It's a $20 bill. I was so mad. Oh, I was so mad. You know why I was mad? Because I felt like I deserved better. I was like, man, 
I should have gotten paid more doing that than I make at the grocery store. Why? Because I worked harder for it. That was a great lesson for me. Because I, I realized both, both from a, 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 a flesh, a worldly perspective and also a spiritual perspective. That day I learned it doesn't matter how hard you work or your hard work doesn't determine your pay. Right. Because there are a lot of people who do backbreaking work and they don't get paid very much. That, that was lesson number one for me. Just because it was backbreaking work and because it was difficult and it was hard doesn't mean you're going to get a lot from it. Right. Boom. Bingo. Go to school. Right. Go to school after you finish doing this and, and do something. Right. Do something. Don't don't do backbreaking work your whole life. That was lesson number one. But lesson number two is I look back at that now. I didn't have the spiritual eyes to see it then, but as I look back at it now. I didn't even deserve that 20 bucks from a spiritual perspective. We, we do that our whole lives. We, we, we work for the Lord, so to speak, and we break our backs. We serve him. But the Bible says that one day those are they're going to be cast in hell and they're going to say, Lord. But I, I did healings in your name. I, I, I preached in your name. I, I did all these things. I, I, I gave to the poor in your name. And he's I never knew you. I never knew you. And we're thinking, man, the work that I did, I earned this. No, it's all, it's, it's all by grace. It doesn't matter how hard we work. We're all going to get the same thing as far as Christians go. Now, that shouldn't be an excuse for you like, oh, well, I'm going to take it easy then. We serve the Lord because we get to. He has done so much to us and for us. It should be our pleasure to do everything we can for him. See, when we look about, when we think about if this is fair or not, or if looking at the Amalekites, well, they didn't deserve this. This is what we have to, we have to come to the realization of. There is no one who isn't deserving of God's wrath. The Amalekites, they weren't blameless. They deserved that and more. They were guilty. Whatever unfavorable circumstance we are suffering, from a fundamental level, we are deserving of it. Man, that is heavy. That is hard to accept. You're like, wait, wait a second, Pastor, I'm, I, I, I'm his. I'm a Christian, or maybe you're not. Maybe you're sitting here thinking, I'm not a Christian because of these things. Maybe you were abused as a child. Maybe you're going through a sickness now. Uh, maybe all these things that are happening to you, you can't explain. Maybe you lost a loved one, and you're just trying to make sense of everything, and you're angry with God. And you're thinking, this is not fair. I want to tell you in love, don't say that. You are blessed that you do not get what's fair. Because what's fair to you is complete and utter destruction by God's wrath. That is truly what's fair. The Amalekites, they were wicked and unrepentant people. They symbolize those who reject God and live life according to what is right in their own eyes. 
When we look at them, we must know God's holiness would not and could not let their sin pass without their due punishment. See, because he is utterly holy and the Amalekites were utterly wicked, he had every right to bring destruction upon them. Now we have to bring that to a personal level. God has every right to bring his destruction upon us. He has every right to blot our name out from under the heavens. He has every right. We cannot stand before him and say it is not fair. We can. I mean, we can physically actually do that, but it's not going to get us anywhere. When it comes time for your judgment, you can say, hey, this is not fair. But we'll see how far that goes. So we understand that God, he has every right to do this. Now, here's the big question, and we're going to end with this question. How can corrupt people please an incorruptible God? For me, that's an important question because that speaks to all of us. If we're here hearing this message, we're corrupted, right? In one sense or another. So how can we as corrupt people please an incorruptible God? Because God does not let sin go by. He's a holy God. If we've done anything against him, we need to be punished and we should be punished. We should be destroyed. Okay, but this is how it happens. Number one, we must realize that we are born completely corrupt because of our sin and we deserve to suffer in every way possible. That, that's, that's step number one. Right? We must realize that we are born completely corrupt because of our sin and we deserve to suffer in every way possible. The fact that sometimes we do not suffer, the fact that we have good health, the fact that all these things that we think should be guaranteed to us, it's all blessings from the Lord. That's it. I I have to to thump myself in the head because I'm so hard-headed sometimes. I tell my wife, we have this running joke. Every night we end up in the same spot at the same time. And it's like, I tell her Groundhog Day. That's all I say, Groundhog Day. It just feels like we're living Sunday to Sunday, and it's just like, I don't know, it's just constant, constant, same thing over and over and over, and I tell her Groundhog Day. And one night, it was just past week, I told her that, I said Groundhog Day, and the Spirit of the Lord convicted me, man. I was like, I sat here, and I, and, and I thought, and it almost brings me to tears now, but I, I thought, how much of a blessing is it just to have a normal day? Yeah, kids are healthy. My family is fed. I'm taken care of. I have a wonderful church that I'm serving. And life is great. It should be great. But yet I'm over here at Groundhog Day, Groundhog Day, Groundhog Day. Like same thing over and over and over again. And I thought, you fool. Do you want something else? Is this boring to you? Do you want something else? I love when my kids say I'm bored. Jonah's laughing right now because he knows. They already know. They're like, I'm, and they stop because I'm about to fix that. In essence, I was telling God, I'm bored. I'm bored. We don't realize the blessings of God, the normal days. It doesn't get better than that, right? Not here on earth. A normal day. So we must realize that we Deserve to suffer in every possible way. Number two, we must realize that God is gracious and merciful to save us from what we deserve. 
That's what we have to realize. We, you can't be like young Ricky working in the middle of summer thinking you're going to earn this big payday with God. You're working and working and working. You're thinking, man, God's going to bless me because of my work. No, everything you get is a gift from the Lord. Why? Because he is gracious and merciful. Listen, if we are saved from God's wrath, and if we are saved from our circumstance, let's say we have a sickness. Let's say our, our marriage is falling apart. Let's say we lose a loved one and God heals us through that and brings our marriage together and heals us from this sickness. If that happens, and we know it doesn't happen all the time, but if that happens, it is solely by the grace of God. We should not think that we deserve anything from him except his wrath. See, that's where we get clouded. We get confused because we still think like this is this is God. He should do this for me. We forget we are the creation. He is the creator. And if we think we deserve anything more then you sound like a fool, like I did Groundhog Day, like, oh, this is boring. Number three, we must realize that God does not let sin go unpunished. This is very important. And this is even true in the case of the Christian. If we are going to be corrupt people who worship an incorruptible God, we must realize he does not let sin go unpunished. Let me start with the Christian first. For the Christian, the punishment of sin has been paid through Christ's death on the cross. You didn't get a free pass. You're not sitting here blessed because of a free pass or what you've done. Your, your sin amounted to something. It, 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 someone actually paid for it. It wasn't, it wasn't free. Christ paid for the penalty of your sin. He, he was placed, or excuse me, God placed our sin upon Christ and he, God, placed Christ's righteousness upon us. By his stripes, we have been healed. So somebody paid the penalty for your sin. You see, God just didn't let your sin go unpunished or let it pass by. Christ paid it. He suffered the wrath of God. The same wrath that is coming upon these Amalekites, uh, even more so, actually. But he suffered the wrath of God so that you would not. That's only true for the Christian. For the unbeliever. For those who have rejected God. For those who live as if there is no God. The punishment of sin will be fully paid out by you. For the Christian, Christ has died for the Christian. But for those who say there is no God, your punishment will be paid out by you. The wrath that was placed upon Christ, well, that wrath is coming for you. It will be placed upon you, and God will utterly blot out your memory from under heaven. That's where we stand. And I want us to notice there was no forewarning of the wrath of God. On that day, when speaking about the Amalekites, the Lord just brought about his judgment. We, we saw this sin take place all the way back in Exodus. And then the Lord said, today, 
Today, my judgment upon the Amalekites starts. Saul, go and destroy their nation. Think of the, some of the other historical judgments of God. Think about the flood. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Even the nation of Israel, the Babylonian captivity uh, with the Assyrians, and then also how the, the kingdom of uh, the Israelites came down with the Romans. People were going about their daily activity when the judgment of the Lord came upon them. In fact, the Bible says that God's judgment is like a thief in the night, right? The day of the Lord is like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and there is security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. See, My brothers and sisters, our only hope is from the wrath of God is found in Christ. That's our only hope. We completely deserve God's wrath. We are undeserving of his mercy. Our only hope is Christ. If you are here and you do not believe in Christ as Lord and Savior, I'm here to tell you this morning that you must place your faith and trust in him. He is your only hope. For those who are saved, I need to remind you of something too. You as well need to continue to place your faith and your trust in the Lord to govern your life because he is the pure, incorruptible, and sovereign God. What he says he will do, and he has every right to do it. It's hard to not complain about your circumstance. It's very easy to say this isn't fair. It's very easy to see God as a man. But when we do these things, we are in the wrong. What has happened to you has happened to you through the providence of God. He is using these circumstances to sanctify you. And I'm not going to deny it. These are ugly things that happen to us. Ugly and hurtful things. They're hard to deal with. It's easy to become angry. But we must recognize the work that he began in you, he's going to carry it to completion in Christ Jesus. He alone is holy. You, you are fallen. We have to remember that when we approach the throne of grace. Let us pray.